0: So an official welcome to our Bible study, uh, on Acts 15. We are already, uh, past halfway point in Acts, at least as we count chapters. And, um, it's, uh, it's a moderately long chapter, uh, with some important things. So I don't yet know whether we will get through it all, but we will do. Uh, our best not to get bogged down unnecessarily if we get bogged down necessarily that's okay but let's open with prayer first heavenly father without your guidance and without the aid of your holy spirit our search is in vain and we remain in the darkness and blindness of unbelief so we pray that as we study your word your holy spirit would guide us into all truth strengthen our faith kindle in our hearts a genuine love for you and for our neighbors and to keep our hope in your promises Alive and strong. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Acts chapter 15, which comes immediately after Acts chapter 14. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have returned from the so-called first mission trip uh, to um, uh, what we now call central Turkey. And they're back in Antioch. And... They have been there for, and Luke's favorite phrase, no little time with the disciples. So that's his way of saying a long time. How long the time is, we can't be absolutely sure. One, and in fact, the timing of this next episode is a, has been a matter of much scholarly debate. I will not bore you with any details of it. But um, it all, uh, all depends on uh, how this relates to Galatians 1 and 2. Where Paul speaks of his, uh, of his meeting with uh, Peter and James and the other so-called pillars. Whether that's a reference to Acts 15 or to some other meeting. That depends partly also on the timing of Paul's travels. There is a and just, I'm just telling you this so that you know how exciting New Testament scholarship can be. There's the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. Are these churches in Galatia, <laughs> North Galatia or South Galatia, because we can, Paul uh, visited both places. And so whether, you know, depending, but at different times. So if, if it's South Galatia, it's earlier. And if it's North Galatia, it's later. And I would have thought last time I checked, which is a while ago now, a few years ago, uh, I think the field was fairly evenly split. But Galatians does give some interesting, uh, insight into this. So if we get the chance, um, what we will do in the course of tonight, we will just have a li- uh, quick, uh, look at it. Where, where, you know, the, where Paul sets out his credentials, his apostolic credentials. But for now, you will remember also that, uh, there was the collection, uh, for uh, the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, one scholar I consulted uh, who's quite reliable in these sorts of matters uh, places this in the year 48 and there had been uh, a famine, the famine that was referred to uh, earlier as prophesied by Agabus uh, but apparently it was also one of the so-called Sabbath years. So one year in seven you're supposed to leave your Feels fallow and those were always, uh, potential, you know, there's always potential for, uh, shortages in such years. And if it was a Sabbath year and there had been a poor harvest previous year, then there would be real, uh, food distress. And it seems, you know, that would, so that would make, uh, like sense of the need for that collection and possibly what transpires here might be related to that. In other words, that there might have been a delegation from Jerusalem sent to Antioch. Uh, initially, on account of the need of the saints in Jerusalem, that's not stated in the text. It's, an, it's a supposition based on, if like inference from other facts, uh, and it's a possibility. That's just way of uh, background, and we can take it. You know, we can uh, when we next we have a quiz, we di- divide it into two teams: the South Galatians and North Galatians. But for the time being, <laughs> we can uh, park that in 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 the uh, scholarship. Uh, so it doesn't actually change the meaning of the scripture. It's really just a, for those people who want to tie loose ends and try to make everything to into a neat row, it's important for them. So, without further ado then, uh, shall we read? <clears throat> and the, um first thing I think we need to do, uh, is to get the uh, setting for the scene. And so let's begin by reading the first, only the first five verses. So somebody could read for us verses one to five. Excellent read. Thank you. Um,
1: But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so here we have again... <clears throat> um, uh, here, here we have the first uh, serious theological... Crisis of the church. We know it's a crisis because we have, uh, we have. Um, first of all, the language uh, that Luke uses, uh, and um, and we. It's
2: will, no small dissension, code for a blazing row. you think?
0: No small dissension means one massive whopping argument. We will see a little bit later on that it gets, it doesn't get better straight away. Um, So there was a a small, no small, dissension debate with them, and this is again. um, If I can begin with a general point, which is to say that this is a matter to do with salvation. So this is a theological dispute that goes right to the heart. Now, the first thing to say is that we need to understand what the position being uh, proposed by these men from Judea, who Paul, if this is the same event as in Galatians, uh, Paul calls them false brothers, which is a pretty, it's pretty strong language. And it also becomes apparent as we read through this chapter that they are acting on their own authority. Uh, again, in Galatians, Paul Links them explicitly to James. Now, James is not introduced to us. He just sort of appears. He's, we've already come across him once, uh, briefly, and now he appears here without introduction, without any background. Now, he who is James, first of all, I'm the half brother of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus' brother. Referred often, uh, he was he was nicknamed James the Just. Uh, he was famous not just amongst the early Christians, but in in Jerusalem more widely for having been a for being a very pious, a devout man. We know from the Gospels that he didn't initially believe uh, in Jesus, but he sort of emerges out of nowhere at some point to become clearly the, the head of the. Uh, church in jerusalem and it is he who acts with authority now even though peter the first of the like the prince of the uh, the apostles is there james seems to be in the chair because they're in jerusalem he is often referred to as the first bishop of jerusalem uh he uh he lived another uh 10 years or so if i can get my data i know a bit more than that so about 14, 10, 10, 12, 14, 15 years. He died, if I remember correctly, in year 62, but uh, I'm doing it from the top of my head, so it might be a few years out. Um, he died. Uh, he was uh, stoned to death at the behest of the high priest at the time who took advantage of the fact that the Roman procurator had died, Festus, and his replacement well, hadn't arrived yet. And so uh, he, he then decided to do a bit of house cleaning. And one of the things he did was that he killed, had James killed. And that was such an unpopular move that he himself, as soon as the new governor got there, they went and ratted on him and he got deposed after three months as high priest, which shows the esteem in which James was held. There was a, there's an old, uh, old tradition which says that he, he was such a man of prayer that he said his, his reputation was that he had knees, uh, he, his knees were like the knees of a camel. He spent <laughs> so much time on them, uh, on his knees. But this is James the Just. He was so clearly well known, uh, that Luke clearly doesn't seem, feel that there's any need to introduce him in any way at all. But the dispute here is a matter of salvation. Now, what these people are not saying in their own minds and this is uh, we do know this from both from here and from the way that Paul writes about them in Galatians they're not saying that Jesus uh you know that if you like that G- that uh circumcision is sufficient you don't need Jesus rather what they seem to be saying is that Jesus came for the Jews so, if you want to be, if you want to benefit from Jesus' uh, ministry, from what, if you want to receive the benefits of the salvation Jesus brought, you have to become a Jew because Jesus came for the Jews. He came to be the savior of Israel, so you have to become an Israelite, which means a Jew. And again, that makes a lot of sense in all sorts of ways. To a first-century Jew, and it makes a lot of sense. It makes so much sense, in fact, that we have amongst us today many, many, many Christians who believe that Jews are saved in a way that is different from the way Christians, non-Jews, like Gentiles, are saved, Um, because of what the way that the Old Testament describes salvation as being for the people of Israel.
1: How would those people then uh, explain what Paul writes in Romans about uh, them being enemies of the, uh, Jews being enemies of the, I mean, how do they explain that then? (laughs) I mean, we don't have to go into that, but it's like a question.
0: A 2 bad answer. (laughs) With difficulty. (laughs) Okay. Okay, it's not, it's not, it's not a sustainable uh, argument or position from the point of view of the New Testament, but if you are reading the New Testament with particular spectacles that are so coloured by the Old Testament understood in a, and I, I use this, so, sort of, uh, use the expression slightly cautiously, but with Jewish eyes, then you can see how you can come to that conclusion. However, it's not. You know, the the so the issue isn't that they are denying Jesus with the intent; they are simply narrowing down the field, if you like, the 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 target that Jesus had in mind. In other words, it's a kind of really really radical version of uh, limited atonement. You know, do you know the doctrine of limited atonement, which Calvinism teaches, that Jesus only died for the elect? He didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect. It's very common. Uh, John will have come across it more than once, and I, I suspect that some others too. And, um, and 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 this one of this being one of the big uh, dissent, points of dissension between uh, Lutherans and Calvinists since the sixteenth century. Did die, Jesus die for the sins of the whole world, or did he only die for the elect? Now, this is, if you like, uh, a very israelite jewish kind of version of limited atonement jesus only died for israelites so you have to become a jew and what they don't seem to realize and this is something that paul has to work through in his letters in he does it very in a very sort of rough and coarse uh, and very forceful way in galatians and in a very refined and and sophisticated way in romans and it crops up in, Cor- in the letters, of, letters to the Corinthians, the Colossians, the Philippians, and Ephesians, i.e., everywhere, almost, <laughs> um, and the first Thessalonians as well. So it's kind of everywhere. It's, it's, it's the, it becomes the, the one of the big issues, and we've talked about this already. Is what are you saying about Jesus' death and resurrection if you also need to be circumcised? There was a book written a few years ago by a gentleman who's since been disgraced, uh, disgraced himself rather, Uh, so I won't recommend the book as such necessarily, but it was, the title was very, very good. The title of the book was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the, uh, if I like the uh, correlation from that you can make, make is that Jesus Plus anything equals nothing. I.e. either we are saved on account of what Christ has done for us or we're not. This incidentally also was the issue at the the point um, at issue at the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church has never denied that salvation is in the name of Jesus and that his death was for the sins of the world and his resurrection means that we have eternal life and all those sorts of stuff. That wasn't the issue. The issue is, is that all there is? Or is there something else as well? Or put it another way, how do you, which is the question here, how do, how do I get to the receiving end of what Jesus did? That's really the question. That's the question that divides Christendom. It's not about, you know, Christendom is not divided over whether God is a trinity or not. Christendom is not divided over whether Jesus died for the sins of the world or not, whether he was the son of God or not. G- Christianity is not divided over whether Jesus rose from the dead and whether he sits to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, or whether the church is the body of Christ. What well, Christendom is divided over, and it was here in Acts 15, over how do I get to the receiving end of what Jesus did do? How do I be- enter into his kingdom? How do I become his disciple, his follower, his, his child of God? Is it simply through Jesus and what he has done and what he has left behind, or is there something else? And these people who come from Judea to Antioch, you remember Jerusalem is the mother church, Antioch is the daughter church, it's a satellite. And remember that it was established by Hellenistic Jews, i.e. Diaspora, Greek-speaking Diaspora Jews, whereas the Jerusalem church Seems to have be, become predominantly Aramaic speaking Jewish, a kind of a Palestinian Jewish. They come and they're essentially saying, there is a prerequisite for re- becoming a recipient of grace. And hence the no small dissension. Because on this hangs everything. And it's a, and, and it's, it's a, I'm, I'm really grateful <laughs> that it, it cropped up in the early church and they had to deal with it and that Luke was there to write it down. Because that is the perennial issue all the time. Almost every heresy boils down to this: you know, Jesus plus something or Jesus plus nothing. That, by way of introduction, does anyone want to ask or comment on that or anything I've said so far?
3: I'd like to just ask something. Yep. Um, you know, you know, the dissension that was. Spoken off here and then they go on to make the, the, um, ruling in the council. It, when Paul wrote the letter to Galatians, was that prior to the ruling in the council or after? Or uh, is that being mentioned already?
0: Would I be right in thinking he had to get a step out of the room for a minute a moment ago?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I, my he was ready. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, so I had right. to go no, no. Just, it.
0: no. Um, there are two theories about it. Oh, right, One okay. theory is that Galatians refers to Acts 15. And the other one is that there is some other meeting that has taken place. And, uh, if you, if you look up, go on Google and look up the South Galatian Theory and the North Galatian Theory, that'll give you the, uh, you can get the broad uh, answer. It,
3: it was just that I, the force that Paul speaks in, in Galatians concerning those, like with the, of the circumcision and regarding the false gospel, it's like really strong.
0: It is very strong. But,
3: and it, it just seems, before the actual council made the decision and, and made it public, it just seemed, it, it doesn't seem to ring true to me, but it seemed like the, it should be the other way around sort of thing, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically you, you just summarized the debate among scholars. They're, either way you go, there are difficulties. Okay. It's just a little bit difficult to match Galatians 1 and 2 with Acts 15. In fact, I, 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 my expertise runs to this, particularly that when I was in my first year, I had to, I sat a New Testament exam and I had three que- I could answer three other questions on the paper and I couldn't find another one, so I had to quickly improvise one that I had prepared and it happened to be on our, Acts, our Galatians 1 and 2 and Acts 15 Talk about the same thing or different things. Uh, <laughs> but that was a quarter of a century ago, so I can't remember what I said then and I'm not sure if I was right or wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so so you, you can go either way, uh, and it, you, you just pick a New Testament scholar, and if you flip a coin, there's a half chance you get it right which way they're going to go. Yeah.
3: Thank
0: you. yeah, but we will look at Galatians in a minute if we got time. Okay, anything else about the the kind of background stuff? I'm sorry, I'm spending time on it, but I think it's important to kind of lay the groundwork.
1: Looks like you know the. Um... Most challenging things with regards to the doctrine always rise within the church, not from outside. Yes. All it's, through always,
0: the it's always the most dangerous thing.
1: Well, Yeah, exactly, most dangerous, yes.
0: Yeah. It's far more dangerous because if you have an external enemy, that that forces the church to close ranks
1: yeah. and
0: become un- more unified. That's why often what happens, you see that churches under persecution are often stronger than churches after persecution. After persecution, churches often start to, you know, weaken and break up. And you know, if you look at the West, I mean, the, the church in the West in Europe, Western Europe has been essentially mollycoddled for, you know, almost a millennium now. And, uh, I can't say that it's stronger now than it was a thousand years ago. As a result.
3: I'm sorry to be a pain, but uh, I realise that this is quite important and I, could I just have, mention one thing without dwelling on it, concerning what Rhea said at the start, about, you know when Ray said about, um how can the, those, but how could they, um argue against Paul, what Paul had said? And, and, and one of the, one of the, uh, doctrines that I, I strongly, um sort of, affected by in, in recent years has been dispensationalism and the way they do it they they literally they call like the christian church like a parenthesis it's like god has literally stopped time and, and and there's like the whole church era is is like separated from the jewish era and and that's how they do it so 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 basically it's as though god has gone through the old testament and then stopped and then we'll come back to them at some point, but that, that's how they get around it largely. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's a very, very popular doctrine in a lot of, um, sort of evangelical churches and Calvin chapel and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And I would say that you've just given a more wordy version of with difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. I'll shut up now, sorry.
0: No, 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 good. I, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't, I didn't want to get down, go down that particular track, but this is, this is, this is the point of the issue, and it remains relevant today. I think that's the key point. And please note that when this happens, and again, I'm repeating things I've said before. What becomes the number one, number one priority for, for the disciples at this point? Sorting
4: what... out the, um, sorting out the what. Well, well, the true doctrine was sorting exactly. out heresy that's
0: yeah. Well they have to establish whether it is a heresy or not. In other words, they go for an answer. But the number one priority here is to find the truth. Okay. And this is imp- I, I know I keep making this point, but it's, it's maybe it's because it's a hobby horse of mine or because I've been burned too many times or something. But we can I cannot overemphasise how important it is to be concerned with the truth above all. Rather than with a pragmatic goal of something else, yeah. so instead of saying number one priority is that we may we remain unified number one priority is that we show care and love for each other number one priority is that we you know that we uh present a unified witness to the world number one no, none of those things is the number one priority. all those things are very important, but they 're not the first priority because well because god 's word is is the is is the thing that actually brings us salvation. It's the, it's the only way we can know God and be known by God through God's word. And therefore, what God's word says about these things actually matters more than anything else. What's the point of us being unified if we can't actually get a straight message out? What's the point of us presenting, you know, um, uh, caring for one another while we're, you in know, a, in a, remain in a tight huddle as we drift further and further from God? That's no good. More important than all things is the truth which is an argument for being ecumenical rather than against being ecumenical. And we will see this. Uh, I was was reading an article earlier today and it said that James becomes the first ecumenist or ecumenical theologian of the church. The first person to start working to bridge gaps between different groups of Christians. But it's interesting how he does it. But let us we'll get to that in a minute. Let's get to the text. So some men came down from Judah, were teaching their brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, i.e. you have to become a Jew. And of course, this is a church where you've got a lot of Gentiles. And uh, you can imagine that having been Christian, some of them will have been Christians for probably a decade by now. Um, this might have come as a little bit of a shock. And if it's true, then it kind of is a big deal. Paul and Barnabas don't take, Paul and Barnabas take a rather dim view to this, and they have a no small dissension and debate with them. So, uh, this will not have been the most orderly and, uh, warmly fuzzy, uh, service, church service Antioch has ever seen. These sort of things, by the way, happened, i, mean, I told you before, but, you know, during the Reformation, this happened a few times, at least, or had been recorded a few times, where somebody would come and lead a service in a, in a, uh, in a church that has now become Lutheran and then they start teaching essentially papal doctrine and they get into a sh- uh, shouting match with the congregation and, and there's well, at least one one famous incident when the congregation just started singing one of Luther's hymns against heresy so loudly that the preacher eventually had to give up and sit down <laughs> very sadly that hymn, hymn is not in our hymnal at the moment but I hope it will be in our hymnal supplement so we can sing it just in case we need it <laughs> um <coughs> So, But they have this big argument, and so what the church does is does something incredibly wise. They take spokespersons, and they take Paul and, Paul and Barnabas. Now, why do you think Paul and Barnabas get picked?
4: Um, well, it says later that the party of the Pharisees were saying about circumcision, and Paul had been a Pharisee.
0: Yep. I think that, that's, that's certainly not, not going to be unhelpful.
4: And they've just come back from um a mission where they were um, they were spreading the gospel amongst um Gentiles.
0: Okay, so they've got they are experts in Gentile Christians by now. They've they've had and they they've they've got story or two to tell <clears throat> about God's work amongst the Gentiles who have not been circumcised. Um and some others. Appointed and again, there is were studying. So, um, uh, to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, we have by this time where this, you know, again, there is a term that's crept up out of nowhere: the elders. This, by the way, was a Jewish uh, so sort of Jewish synagogue had this structure where you would have essentially like a board of elders, the the, the kind of leading men of the synagogue who were responsible jointly for the administration of the synagogue and the early Christian church picked it up. So we would have, you know, throughout, uh, pretty much throughout the early church, you would have this, even quite small church, you would have more than one elder. And these elders or presbyters, they were what we would call essentially pastors, but there was more than one. And then one of them was fully in charge, like it wasn't uh, was uh, singularly in charge. And that was, came to be known as the overseer or bishop. So there was tended to be a kind of a more than one person uh, in most churches, and certainly in Jerusalem they had these the apostles and the elders, those who ruled or governed over the church. Being sent on their way by the church, so they are not acting in a personal capacity. They pass through both Phoenicia and uh, Phoenicia and Samaria. Um, do we all know where Phoenicia is? Lebanon. Uh, basically, yeah, well, the, the coast, Lebanese and Syrian coast in modern terms. Do you want to see a map quickly? Yeah, go on. Yeah, uh, it's the old map that we saw the first, uh, mission journey, missionary journey. But there's Phoenicia. Okay, you can see it. So they are in Antioch and they travel down the coast, uh, almost certainly or possibly, uh, possibly down the river and then across to the coast is, the coast is flat. The, uh, off, uh, and then there's the rift valley and the mountain in the middle. So it's, it's the quickest way to travel. They will travel through Phoenicia and then somewhere around, uh, just between Caesarea and Ptolemais, Arco, okay, they would have turned inland. No, sorry, I'm lying. After Sidon and Tyre, they would have turned inland and then come down through Samaria. There's a watershed apparently somewhere just north of, north of the Sea of Galilee. And, and that's a sort of natural place, uh, natural place to cross over. So they would have come down there. And of course we know, um about the churches in Samaria already. Uh, but also, uh, you know, by this time, uh, there will be, I mean, Jesus already had some dealings in this region. You remember that he went to the region of Sidon and Tyre. There was the healing of the woman, uh, the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. Syrophoenician, there's uh, the clues in that, in that, in the name on the title. Um, and there are Christians clearly by this time there, and so they're not just you know, they're they're in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, but not not so much of a hurry that they wouldn't stop at every church. I mean, obviously, you know, they're probably walking or traveling by very slowly, so they need to stop overnight in places, and they're stopping at churches. And while they're there, they encourage uh, the brothers. And <laughs> how do they encourage them? Verse three.
1: Well, they tell about um, what, what had happened in, uh, during their journey. Gentiles.
0: Um, yeah. They tell them about the conversion of the Gentiles, which is a canny thing to do, given that they're going to go down to Jerusalem to discuss whether Gentiles can be converted <laughs> without becoming Jewish. Um, and, of course, Samarit- Samaritans were circumcised. They considered themselves Jewish. The Jews didn't. Um, the other Jews didn't consider them. But, uh, nevertheless, you see, they... they uh, whereas Phoenicia was, uh, Phoenicia was, uh, you know, that was a Gentile region almost exclusively, and so there would have been Gentile Christians there, and they brought great joy to, joy to all the brothers. So this is a clever bit of church diplomacy while they're at it as well. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, and this is not just that they they got a cup of tea and a biscuit, but this is a, this is this in the New Testament is an important term, this welcome, which essentially means that you are. Uh, you are received as a a fellow Christian
2: so it's a very a very official welcome
0: yes it's an acknowledgement that they are you know that, that they are that they are uh, considered to be uh, fellow believers members of the church this is why like in Romans towards the end of Romans Paul says welcome one another uh, w- which is to say you know treat one another as fellow Christians, even if, you know, you've got a Gentile house church and a Jewish house church. If you go to each other's churches, welcome one another. Uh, And not just by the church, the whole church, but the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. So they kind of said, oh, thanks very much. Let me tell you what God has done. And they start talking immediately about their mission. Now we don't get told anything about it because we've already heard it. Chapter uh, 14 is what God had done. Now notice the language. They declared all that God had done uh, either with them or through them. So that's and but some believers who belong to the part of the Pharisees. So we see that, you know, again, you remember when Jesus, Jesus' ministry, almost anywhere Jesus goes, he does or says anything. He all has to do is to cough, and you've got four Pharisees there arguing with him, which is to say that he was surrounded by, you know, the Pharisees were clearly drawn to him. You know, when the, when the man, uh, the paral para, um, paralyzed man, is lowered through the roof. Because the house is so full that that's the only way to get in. Nevertheless, there are Pharisees in the room who, who have the opportunity to grumble. So they were there, They got there before the house filled up. They were early adopters to use a modern term. And so the Pharisees, clearly they had a lot in common and, and you know, they have to feel a little bit sorry for the Pharisees because, uh, they, Pharisee basically in modern parlance means a hypocrite and we think of them as being these really strict legalists. Actually the Sadducees were the real, they were, they were the nasty ones. They were the one, you know, the, um, Pharisees were known to be lenient and gentle with the people and erring on the side of forgiveness on the whole and, and so for example when James was, uh, stoned later on, um, the kind of reaction was this is typical Sadducee stuff. This is the sort of thing Sadducees do. You know they have. You know they are completely strict, and they got. There's no flexibility at all. Uh, whereas the Pharisees were far more. They were far more popular with the people. So, and was and nice in Cai-
2: in Caiaphas, Sadducees.
0: Yes, they were. Yes, whereas Nicodemus, was a, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, mm. and that kind of tell. That there's there's your little uh, thumbnail sketch. because
2: well, would, would Paul have known some of these Pharisees personally?
0: Uh, impossible to tell. Because a lot of time has passed, but there's a perfectly plausible that he would have done. And he obviously, he was one, he had been one of them. And so what they were strict about was their personal piety. Uh, not necessarily about, you know, they weren't ruling people with an iron rod. But they had become Christian. And Pharisees, but the thing for the Pharisees was that they were fastidious about keeping their law. And there's a long story behind it, but to cut it extremely short, this was part of the kind of the reaction to the fact that the exile was many Jews perceived the exile to be continuing. You know, they had come back from Babylon half a millennium before, but they had the kingdom of Israel had never been restored. What's going on? Why is that? And one reaction to that was to say, well, let's go, go to a monastery. That's what the Ess- did in did. you know, the Qumran community. Another reaction was let's kick the Romans out. And that was what the, uh, the Zealots um, did later on, at least in the 50s, 60s, and, uh, and 50s and 60s. Uh, and one reaction, which was the pharisaical reaction, was, they're right, there's something wrong with us. God is still angry with us. We need to purify ourselves. We need to be better Jews, which is kind of, again, I think we ought to have sympathy with that. And, uh, you know, there's, the essay in space said, we are the only good ones, these all the other lot are bad. We, we are the, we are the true Jews. Pharisees said, no, we must improve ourselves. And so they were very fastidious about keeping the law and they kept extra laws just to be on the safe side. You know, if, if you, if you set off a couple of, uh, early, early landmines that you've laid rather than God, then you still probably a couple of layers away from the actual law of God. And, and that way you kind of keep the, keep the law. And so when somebody comes along and suggests, actually none of this matters anymore. If you hear them saying none of these matters anymore, you can be saved without keeping the law at all. Which is the kind of Chinese whispers version of what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. You can just become, you can just cite up the whole law and just become, you know, be saved uh, just like that. It's 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 not going to go down well, and it didn't. It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, because salvation is for Israel. And if salvation for Israel, if you want to be saved, you have to become one, an Israelite. You have to become a Jew. And so they're not unconcerned about the salvation of the Gentiles. They're simply concerned about keeping the whole thing in-house, as it were. Quite happy for people who be brought into the house, but it has to stay in-house. Right. So we read on.
4: Shall I read the next bit?
0: Uh, Thank you. Uh, 6 to 11, please. 6 to 11.
4: The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them... Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will.
0: Okay, so Peter gets up. So first of all, the, so they've already had no small dissension and then they come and they, uh, there had been much debate. Or you could equally well translate. you could also translate a great debate. So this is this is this has become a really very heated uh, issue, obviously. And you can imagine if the whole church is gathered, and the apostles, and the elders, and you've got the Pharisees in one corner, you know, waving the Torah about, and it was probably quite a quite a, a Quite a lively affair. What, what would they call, what politicians would call it? A, a robust exchange of, robust and frank exchange of views.
2: <laughs> frank and
0: forthright. Uh, and eventually, where well, this goes on and on, you can, I mean, we've all be, been to meetings like this, I suspect. Hi, now Uh, and, uh, eventually Peter stands up. And, He's referring to something we've already heard twice, which is what the
2: Con- conversion of Cornelius and his
0: household. Conversion of household. We've had it narrated once by Luke, once by Peter himself. Both the first time Luke narrates what happened as an outside observer. Second time Peter relates what happened from as an inside observer. Now he refers to the same thing he tells it from a completely different perspective. What's the perspective here? Have a look at how he, how he describes it. What's the perspective which he adopts for t- talking about it?
1: That uh, Jews will be saved the same way as ten childs, basically turning it around.
0: That's, that's the conclusion he reaches. But I'm, think, I'm, what I'm interested in is how, when he's telling, he's telling us the whole Cornelius thing, without actually mentioning Cornelius. So what is he telling us?
4: What God did. God made a choice. God knows the heart. He gave the Holy Spirit just to be, did to, to us. And God made no distinction.
0: Yeah. So he's, he narrates the whole, thank you. He narrates the whole thing theologically, not historically. It's not this happened and this happened, this happened. Therefore, he says, he, he now gives the, like the theological interpretation, interpretation of what was going on all along. And the emphasis on the action of God. Now, just from a purely human point of view, if you like, as a psychology of a debate, he pulls out the big guns. It's the equivalent of, you know, it's not me; it's the it's the board of directors. Uh, but theologically, this is the key issue, because we know that Peter, well, at least the way he he claims, and we have no reason to disbelieve him he was not, this was not Peter's idea. He was very reluctant. He hadn't decided, you know, we really ought to speak to the Gentiles, you know. They came to him, having been sent by, you know, an angel from God had sent the Gentiles to him. He had a vision, and three times he refused to do what God commanded him to do, which kind of rings some bells, you know, three refusals. We've heard this before. Peter might have thought, you know, not again. Um... um, and and then he gets there and he's preaching and he doesn't quite get round to baptising them and God says okay we've got to get move this thing on and sends the Holy Spirit on them and Peter oh Peter I could better baptise these guys so the whole thing he's Peter's constantly lagging behind because God is leading the action it's not that it's you know, the point isn't that Peter's being disobedient or hopeless or useless or any of those things the point is that God is leading him forcing him to go somewhere where he hadn't thought of going himself or and, and, and nor had anyone else, to be fair. And so it's divine action. And if that's the case, that you know, you know that in the early days, God made the choice among you. So all of you guys, you know, he's kind of pulling rank in a way. You know, all of us guys here, God chose me that by my mouth Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So this is coming from Upstairs. And God who knows the heart, and again the circumcision of the heart, I mean he doesn't say circumcision of the heart, but you know, if you if you know your Jeremiah, like as well as the Pharisees would have done, the whole thing of a circum and Ezekiel, a circumcised heart is kind of the thing. Heart of stone replaced by heart of flesh, circumcised heart. This is the kind of key thing. God is not interested in just the external observance, he's more interested in the state of the heart. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. God acted in just the same way that he did to us. They were Gentiles, we were Jews, and we both got the same Holy Spirit from the same God. You see where he's going with this. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He cleansed their hearts by faith. And now we hear from Peter the message that is, generally speaking, associated with Paul. It is not by the keeping of the law, but by faith of the heart, that we are cleansed from our sins. Now, the cleansing here means, again in the Jewish context, means that they are no longer unclean. For the Pharisaical Jews, Gentiles were Permanently unclean because they were uncircumcised and they broke the law. They ate pork and they, and, and touched things that you shouldn't touch and they, they, they were, uh, breakers of the law. And so they were permanently unclean, even though the old law of Moses doesn't declare Gentiles unclean, they considered them unclean. Which is why you remember when Peter came back from Cornelius' house, they said, what well, on earth were you doing eating with Gentiles? Mixing with the unclean which, by the way, the Pharisees who did not believe in Jesus also had a problem with Jesus when he mixed with the unclean, with, you know, uh, lepers and with prostitutes and sinners and so on. Tax collectors. Yeah. So he's saying God's already acted. This thing has been decided. It's been demonstrated to already for us. What God's mind about this thing is, it's about faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? He turns the table and said, actually, you're the problem. Because God has declared this thing already. This is beyond debate. The thing's been signed and sealed. Now you're putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, and he calls them disciples, i.e. fellow Christians, even though there haven't been so I say he he pre- presuming the outcome that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, and what is that yoke? The law, Moses. the law of Moses. We our fathers couldn't keep it; we couldn't keep it. Now you want the gentiles to try and keep it? What's wrong with you? <laughs> but this is, of course, what every heresy also leads to. It always it doesn't matter which direction you go; you end up with the law around your neck. You can always recognize a false doctrine when it leads to the diminution of grace, to the sidelining in other way, or relativizing of faith and sneaking back in some kind of law-keeping of whatever for. Even people who deny the law, posh word antinomians, actually end up doing just the opposite. Because if you say actually the law, you know, what I do, uh, has not, you know, how I live my life has, n- has nothing to do with my salvation anymore. I, the law doesn't apply to me. Now the definition all of a sudden revolves around the law in its negation. Whereas what the scripture teaches us is that by faith we receive grace of God, we receive the forgiveness of our sins so that the law no longer accuses us, we are no longer defined by the keeping of the law and therefore we can now live under God's law freely we're not trying to escape from it or keep it rather we're just simply living as free children so if like the antinomians are rebels and the legalists are slaves but neither of them knows God as father We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, i.e. not by our, our keeping of the law, just as they will. So this, to summarize this argument then, or some, would somebody like to summarize the argument in relation to the challenge of the Pharisees? The Pharisees saying they have to, you have to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses to be saved, i.e. to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus. What's Peter's reply?
1: We are justified
0: by faith. We're justified through faith. And it's surely, and it's, We receive the grace through faith. We don't receive the grace of God or the grace of the Lord Jesus by the keeping of the law. Because we don't keep it. We can't keep it. And that's the key point. The key point of the law is we are incapable of keeping the law. And that's why it's called grace. What does grace mean?
3: Unmerited, unmerited favor.
0: Unmerited <clears throat> favor. Yep. Any other definitions of grace? It's a it's a quite a, a rich word in the in the New Testament, so it can have kind of multiple facets.
2: There's a mercy aspect to it.
0: Yes, there is. Although I remember a nice nice way. There's a Sunday school definition of it. what's the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve and grace is when you get what you don't deserve. So mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve for your sins and God's grace is when he gives you all the good things that you don't deserve. That's a kind of a Sunday school distinction between mercy and grace. But yes, the grace is like you can think of it as gift, as favor, as goodwill that emanates from the giver of the thing rather than from the recipient. In other words, it's not compensation even when it's reciprocal. And I mean, I've got a book behind me that's uh, made big waves about five years ago. And it's really, one of the most important books on St. Paul written in the last quarter of a century, probably, um, which argues that actually, even in the New Testament, grace of God is never, uh, it's always reciprocal. And as a gift giving is reciprocal. But the question is, what's, the, what's the, how do we reciprocate? And of course, reciprocation is not that we give to God something, we pay him back but rather he, he, he makes us his children and we are his children. We let him be the father. We let him, you know, we receive the grace and we give thanks for it. That's the reciprocation rather than that we kind of compensate God by some something that we've done. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And so there's nothing that we need to do to prepare for the salvation, to receive the grace, or <coughs> or that we need to somehow pay for it afterwards we receive it through faith faith meaning what's the basic meaning of faith trust. trust yeah trust i let god be god and let his true word be true and his promise be true and so what paul or peter does here he completely undercuts the argument that god has already made these people disciples they've received the holy spirit they've got the there's nothing more to receive and if God did that, who are we to say something different? We've got to change our paradigm to use that kind of modern, uh, management speak. We need to, we need to learn to look at the world with different spectacles because if we still think that we need to somehow do something preparatory to receive the grace of God, God has already demonstrated by his actions that that's not the case. And therefore, if that's what we think, we have to think something other. And so he challenges the whole uh, the whole um, world view out of which this comes understandable as it is and even though he used to share that view himself previously and again there are parallels it's not the same issue of the, as at the Reformation we mustn't ever think that first century Jews were like late medieval papal theologians or vice versa but there are clo- clear parallels and this is exactly again the argument that the Reformation brought for. You know, you are adding pilgrimage and pilgrimages and, and good works and all sorts of other things as, uh, either prerequisites or, or requirements after the fact for the grace of God. And essentially what you're saying is Christ didn't do it all. And therefore you're dishonoring Christ. You are, you are denying the grace, uh, the gift of God. If you receive it, through faith alone, it means that it's all God's work and you're simply letting God be God. So it's blasphemous, ultimately. Now, so far we've had no great dissension and we have had a, a, one great big debate. What was the impact? Uh, can we read from 12, uh, to 21 please? Yeah, hello. Thanks. <coughs>
2: And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Mm-hmm. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, makes these things known from a vault. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled and from blood, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, now, what was the impact of Peter's words? He
2: shut the Pharisees up.
0: The whole assembly fell silent. Uh The God, word of God has has the tendency to do this, to silence us uh, uh, when it comes to us clearly enough. So the silence, his argument was unarguable. You couldn't, they couldn't deny what he said. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. And instead of giving a theological treatise on the matter, Barnabas and Paul now relate what Peter had done pre- previously in the church, he related what God had done through him. And now Parnabas and Paul relate, and again, same language, watch, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So again, it's not we, we did this and we did that, but what God had done through them, just like Peter did with the colonies. God was in action. We turned up and God is, and God did, God did all. It's just a bit like the old, um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, old story of Martin Luther when he was asked about how, how he managed to get so much done and, and, and change Christendom, you know, in, you know, from, from the little town of Wittenberg, he said, oh, just, I didn't do anything. I was just, I, I just sat in Wittenberg and drank beer and, and God's word did everything. Um, and he did drink beer, but he did do something, but God worked through him. And it's just that God, God was at work and, you see that there is no dispute. It is simply evidence. And he talks about the signs and wonders. So again, the especially in the early church, and this is still the case uh, from time to time in the church, that God, God, if you like, confirms, to use the language of the acting, God confirms the word with signs and wonders. Remember, they're not miracles. They're signs. and They're wonders. In other words, they are mighty works. Um and they were done among the Gentiles. And when they finish, then James gets up and he, you know, the chairman finally gets to, gets to the podium and speaks with authority. So Peter, if you like, is in the act of uh, Peter the apostle presents the argument, Paul and Barnabas presents the evidence, and now James comes to deliver, uh, judgment so you can see that he's clearly an, you know he's a, he's an important and authoritative uh, figure in the church he is now what what Luke does say you is know, we have no reason to believe that there was a sten- stenography in the room which is to say that it's almost certainly the case that with almost all of the sermons and speeches we find in acts are not recorded we're not recorded word by word and then i have written down or memorized by somebody word for word, but rather what they said was recorded, was kept for you know, kept in memory, was written down, and now Luke is recreating these speeches. This is um, every ancient historian did this. They know what was said and then they it's it's called uh impersonation, not in a conman sort of way, but in a in a there's a um uh, there's a, there's even a technical Greek term for it, uh, in impersonation. In other words, there's a, this is how they would have said it. This is what, we know what they said and now they recreate how they would have said it. And It's what a
2: reconstruction. Said, sorry? It's a reconstruction.
0: I still didn't catch it, sorry. So it's a reconstruction. It's of a, a reconstruction, it's, a, it's a, an imaginative reconstruction and And so and the the distinction is are these the actual words, or is this the actual voice? And the idea is that these are might not be the actual words, but these, this is the actual voice. in other words, this is you know what what was said is recorded here, although they might have said slightly differently and Luke does this because we notice that he the tone or the language i mean it's, it's not as evident as it might be, but he um he changes the language changes uh in in just slightly subtle uh, ways so in verse 7 peter got up and addressed them now peter is the greek version of the rock uh petros now in paul refers to him more commonly than peter in his letters he refers to him as peter. cephas which is the Aramaic, or we actually it should be from us, but it is the Aramaic word that means the rock. Um, and so so Luke refers to him as Peter in Greek. Now, James refers to him as Simeon. Simeon, uh, which is, Simon is a Greek word, Greek name. Simeon is the Hebrew Jewish equivalent one of the sons of Jacob In fact you will uh, you will remember the former uh, uh prime minister more, more than once of Israel Shimon Peres Shimon is actually the is the actual name Shimon which then gets kind of turned into Greek as Simeon <coughs> or Sumeon, to be to be really a uh, uh, precise And and so he kind of the language is that uh, this is how an Aramaic-speaking uh, Jew would, a uh, Jewish Christian would refer to Peter, as opposed to a Greek-speaking Hellenist. So we kind of hear that Jake, James is speaking with the voice of the Aramaic Palestinian Jewish Church, which therefore makes what he says all the more significant because he's not speaking. Peter, you could say he's just straddling two camps. He's that's where he's come from, but he's kind of moved on. Paul and Barnabas have clearly laid their bed with the church in Antioch which is gone if you like they're they they're the kind of the left wing they the, they they the reformers and the Jerusalem church is the is the kind of old bastion is the kind of uh, Tory shires uh, in the shires kind of uh, the establishment the originals and now James is one of them and he gets up to speak and therefore he, his voice has incre- incredible authority it's a little bit like, you know, Winston Churchill speaking up in Parliament and insisting that we, we must let the Labour government set up the NHS and increase taxes. You know, it's that kind of revolutionary thing. If he says it, then he must be true because he wouldn't say it unless he really believed it because he's not one of them. We have heard, <clears throat> said, brothers, listen to me, which is a kind of demand for acceptance and you know, establishment of authority. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. Now, that's a, what does that phrase say? What it what does that mean to take from them a people for His name?
3: It's it's the same as when He took Israel, and He took it refers to Israel as a people for His name in like the Old Testament.
0: Exactly. The people of Israel were the people of, you know, who bore God's name. They were God's people and now he's taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. Which is a roundabout way of saying that he, God included them as his people by his own sovereign direct action. Because that's constantly, that's, that's the question at hand. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's an astute theologian. said, this is the issue. Who are God's people? The circumcised? Or anyone who has faith, and said, "Well, God already went. He went and took from them a people for His name." In other words, it's the thing that I've been I've been arguing for some time now that this is what is going on here is an extension of Israel and the definition of, you know, the Gentiles are included in the promises to Israel no longer by keeping the law but through faith. Israel is not replaced by the church. Nor is he kept separate anymore from the church, but the church is Israel-expanded. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes from the end of Amos. <clears throat> the uh, ESV translation of this verse uh, goes like this. the 9. Uh, Amos 9. <clears throat> Uh, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old uh, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Uh, Which is a slightly different uh, translation. Luke is quoting from the Septuagint. Um, which uh, slightly mangles the original text, but but you see there. What again? Um, what's the uh, force of uh, the quotation? There are two things there.
2: It has been God's plan all along. What has to include Gentiles?
0: So that's one of them. The inclusion of Gentiles. That God, who has promised that He will call the Gentiles, whom He who are called by His name. What's the other side, other as, uh, dimension of it? Verse 16.
3: There's God that's rebuilding it. It's, He's rebuilding the whole tent of David to, to include, to, sorry?
0: What does that mean? To rebuild the t- tent of David?
3: It means the, the, the temple, if you like, the, the top, tab- not the tabernacle, the,
0: not, no, David wasn't the tabernacle guy or the temple guy. What is that? Yes.
3: Like the kingdom. Like
0: the, the kingdom, uh, yes. Restab- yeah, the, kingdom. the kingdom of David. Yes. Which we, we have heard from the beginning of Luke's gospel. In the canticles. Uh, then on Palm Sunday, you know, Blessed He comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. Um, the, the kingdom and this so the question all along has been, and, and it's a burning question for first century Jews when will the kingdom be established? Remember when the disciples asked Jesus just before His ascension, "Is it now that you, you know, you will rebuild the kingdom?" And Jesus said, "It's not for you to know the times and dates." He doesn't say, "No, you're you're wrong." This is how the kingdom, the tent of David, is being rebuilt. The kingdom is being reconstituted by the establishment of authority, and uh, if you like, of Jesus over Jews and Gentiles. A building of a greater Israel, which is so great that it cannot be limited to the twelve Christ, but the Gentiles now being drafted in as well. As God spoke, he said it through Moses, he said, uh, Amos, He says says it more than once through Isaiah. It's in there. It's in, it's in the Psalms, Psalm 117. It, Praise the Lord, all you nations, i.e. Gentiles. It's, it's like, it,
3: it, it seems to constantly hark back to the, the promise God made to Abraham, like whether he'd make him a father of many nations.
0: That too, yes. Seems, there's there's just the just whole thing. The yeah. yeah, he will bless the nation, the nations of the, you know, you know, all the families of the nation shall be blessed through you. Yeah. Abraham and also the same promises made to Jacob at Bethel. But here the focus particularly is on the kingdom, the tent of David has fallen. Because this is again the issue. How do we, how does the, how does Israel, the kingdom get restored? And of course Jesus is the son of David and it gets restored by the swelling of the numbers who, by God who has done these things. And therefore, and then it says, therefore my judgment is and it's reminiscent of the way that Paul speaks in First Corinthians, and we say, "Well, this is not the, no, this is not from the, this is, you know, this is my opinion, but I too have the Holy Spirit." Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I.e., just because it's my opinion doesn't mean that you can dismiss it easily. My judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles, those are the Gentiles who turn to God. Okay, not trouble them. Don't burden them but only to have this, you know, the the verse 20. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled, and from blood. So no keeping of the law, no circumcision, no keeping of the law as such. So what's this thing about verse 20? I mean, is there anybody here who likes a rare steak? Or blood pudding, <laughs> or blood sausage, or any of those things?
2: Black pudding, yes.
0: Yeah, I like those things very much. Am I breaking am I, is it unbiblical to eat a rare steak or or black pudding?
3: No, that that's referring to drinking of, of the blood like sacrificial like like the pagan pagan practice of slaughtering like sacrificing animals and then drinking the blood for whatever reason. Isn't it that type of thing?
0: Uh not exclusively. That's the blood. So we, but actually it doesn't say that. I mean, the Old Testament says you shall not consume any blood at all. And hence the strangled animal. What's the, what's the thing about strangled animals?
3: They still have the blood in them?
0: Yeah, you left the blood in them. And so if you're eating an animal that's been strangled as opposed to uh, uh, as opposed to bled to death, has its throat cut, uh, there will be blood left in there and that's why you shouldn't eat those. Because their blood, life is in their blood, you must not consume any blood. This is being
1: considerate to the Jews that uh, you know around, uh, you know, uh, so well, like a weaker, weaker brother (laughs) type of thing that you take into consideration their traditions and culture and so forth.
0: Precisely, it. This is to enable the church not to split into factions or into groups. Way, you know, ways of life. You know, if, if you are a mixed congregation of Gentiles and Jews. And most early Christian, Jewish Christians continue to observe the law. As do some Jewish Christians now. And that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, we'll see in chapter 16 about, you know, Paul has some, as uh, uh, Timothy circumcised.
1: Mm.
0: If you've got some Jews who are keeping the law, for whom things like blood are a complete no-no. And then you've got Gentile Christians and they have, you know, potluck lunches as a church and you've got half the congregation who are eating kosher and the other half are having uh, black pudding you've got to have problems you can't share, you can't have You know, so it would be offensive to one half and, and it causes divisions and so he's essentially <coughs> laid, these rules are laid out to enable them to live together in harmony, so they're asking may, to make concessions we are not going to burden you with the law but we ask you to make these concessions things polluted by idols, what's that?
2: Is that meat sacrifice to idols?
0: Yeah, meat sacrifice to idols, and again, it's good to remember that for uh, you know, meat eating was a, a rare retreat for most people in the ancient world that it is for us, and uh the a, a very significant portion of a proportion of meat that you find in the market would have been slaughtered in the local temple first. So the temples were kind of slaughterhouses as well as places of. Of uh, rituals and sacrifices and so if you went to the marketplace there's a very good chance that the cut of meat that you're buying had been part of a pay, uh, pagan sacrifice and because of the first commandment uh you know the the uh, this was kind of a, a complete no-no uh for jewish people now paul when he writes to the corinthians about this later on he says well actually you know those gods aren't real so he's not objectively wrong you sacrifice something to a god and, and if somebody sacrificed to a god and then you eat it later on, that doesn't pollute you because that god isn't real. And if you know what you're eating and you've got a clear conscience, it's not a problem. But for the sake of the weaker brother, you don't do that. If it upsets them, you don't do it. And so James is saying don't, you know, basically this is a, this is a line that will, that you mustn't cross. Sexual immorality. That's very considerate of you, isn't it? <laughs> It is thought, and again, it's, it's a sort of, uh, there's some, uh, uh, there, there have been a few scholars who spend a huge amount of time, you know, you've got to write a PhD about something. So what is meant by this phrase in this sort of context in the first century? And it's increasingly thought to be the case, and it's, it's more and more commonly accepted by scholars, that this doesn't refer to sexual immorality in the sense of adultery, fornication, and all that kind of business that the sixth commandment uh, prohibits, but in this sort of kind of list, what he actually refers to is, uh, co In other words, uh, marriages that are, uh, between relatives that are forbidden by the law of Moses. So there's a whole, whole list of, uh, uh, so, sort of, uh, re- relations, uh, with whom you may not be married, which were in, uh, in the law of Moses and which were very commonly Breached in the ancient world. I mean, the the most obvious example is the uh, the um, uh, last of the uh, um, Ptolemies in Egypt, uh, Cleopatra being the famous example, who married their you know their pharaohs married their siblings. So Cleopatra was married to her brother. Now the, that were, even that was sort of pushing it a bit in, in, in Romanized, uh, in, in the ancient world. Uh, but there was plenty of this co So this is probably a relation, uh, probably more likely to be a reference to cosanguinity rather than to, you know, blatant sexual immorality in the kind of sense of, of breaching the sixth commandment.
2: Wasn't there also the issue of temple prostitution with, with the pagans?
0: It wasn't in some places. It wasn't, it wasn't everywhere. Um, I think it's something it's often overstated. I mean there's been um it's often assumed that that's the case and then when people have started looking for evidence they haven't found any. So this is this is not likely this is not going to be um a reference to that because that um that's that was a complete no no anyway. I mean we, we I think if if you read first Corinthians, it's very interesting first Corinthians is a really interesting reflection on this because there we see a lot of these things crop up. So the whole question of what you're allowed to are you allowed to eat uh, food that's being come by the temple then you've got people who are visiting prostitutes, you've got a man who's uh, having an affair with his stepmother and when it comes to those sort of things you know, Paul kind of comes down like a ton of bricks on one but the, uh, he's 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 sort of very diplomatic about some of the others so we see kind of where, they, where the absolute boundaries are what this is not saying is that the law does not apply in any way Is rather that you do not need to keep the law, what, what later theologians have called <coughs> the ceremonial law circumcision and kosher you know the food laws and so on. Because those have already been declared uh you know for like overruled by God. Jesus declared all foods clean, the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius with their circumcision and so on. But the Ten Commandments are still in place. Okay. And then he makes this point that was actually not uncommon in the first first century. There's some uh, we various Jewish sources so you can make this point. From ancient generations Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So he's kind of saying that already, you know, these we're not we're not talking to people who are completely ignorant of everything of the, of the whole law of God. You know, they kinda of, it's almost like, you know, they already kinda of know what the deal is. But these are the sort of things that the you know as as you said earlier this is, this is, this will enable the church to ex you know to co you know Gentiles and Jewish Christians to coexist in one church, and even then as we learn from Galatians, things kind of break up because we we have um and and again this might have been before or after this uh but you have the whole issue in Galatians two when people come from Jerusalem and essentially force. Uh, uh, create a situation where Jewish Christians cease to have table fellowship with Gentile Christians; they start eating separately. Even Peter and Barnabas fall for it, and Paul kind of loses. loses you know, it's a huge defeat for Paul, um, and he 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 then mounts a, a very vigorous defence uh, of this. And you see this later on, like when he writes to Ephesians, he talks about the whole dividing world of hostility. You know that God has made one people. Out of Jews and Gentiles. So this is a d- deeply emotive thing on both sides. And so this is, uh, the, um, uh, this, this is the judgment. Uh, we've got a fair bit left. And what I suggest that we do is that we stop here. And we finish next time because we now have the outcome of it, which is the, the embassy, if you like, the, the, uh, delegation that sent back from Jerusalem with the letter, some of which repeats what we have said and the reaction to it. Uh, <coughs> uh, but, um, we haven't got enough time to cover it all. And rather than start, we, we might as well start with that next time which gives at least a couple of minutes if you're still sufficiently awake and interested for any any remaining questions or comments. We haven't read Galatians 1 and 2 now, but uh, you can do that for your homework. It will take you five minutes. i not sure,
2: but I get the impression when Peter intervened, there's a sort of, uh, there's always a sense of exasperation. He's been sort of sitting biting his tongue till so he can't contain it anymore. And then he sort of waits in.
0: Yes, I think that's very much the case. I mean, he, kind of says, he, you, you, you he
2: can't, can't stand say, this any longer. Yes, it is, I,
0: yeah, absolutely. So he, he, you know, he's essentially saying this thing we, this thing was decided a long time ago. But this is also, I mean, there's, there's a, an old slogan, uh, which came not from, uh, Lutheran Reformation, but later, uh, so, sort of, um uh, reformed tradition, which is called the church is always, must always be reforming, which is not true. I think is a mis- mis- misleading statement. Uh, but rather the church, but the, there is a version, a version of it that I prefer, which is uh, the church must always be returning to the word of God. That something's been established once is no guarantee. Each, each moment and each generation and each, you know, we have to constantly return to the word of God. I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that I, I find it's, it's less of a issue, less of an issue now, but, uh, not that long ago still, it was, it was an issue where, uh, occasionally in, in the Lutheran church in England where people who had been in the Lutheran church since the year dot, and then through whatever, me, re, for whatever reason, through whatever circumstances, then, uh, ended up going to the Church of England or, or, or URC or some other church because there was not, you know, they moved jobs or something like that. But they were treated when they, if they came back to visit, they were treated as, well, they, they, you know, they were there with us when we first started in 1957. And you know, they, of course we, you know, of course we must treat them as members because they, they were there, you know, 30 years ago, they were Lutherans and, and they were, in the thick and thin, you know, and, and it's, it's a partially sometimes tricky thing to say, try and navigate this thing. You don't want to offend people by saying, yes, they were, but they're not anymore. You know, if they, if they've sort of thrown in their lot with, you know, decided actually, I'm quite happy to be a member of the, of a Baptist church now and receive communion there. I'm glad you still go to church, but that's not Lutheranism anymore. And I think I've told you a story of, of, of uh, somebody I know who's, who had to deal with this when, when somebody's daughter who had married a Mormon and converted to Mormonism came back and the family wanted her to receive communion because that was really important for granddad that the family' together, you know, they might've been confirmed in this church and they might've been, you know, granddad still here, but it's, it's not what you were, it's what you are. And you look at the state of churches in many places. I mean, if you look at the, uh, could look at Constantinople, as it was, and say, what's the state of the church there? They've come a long way from what it was. Look at Lutheran churches and and or on the continent, on the Anglican church in this country, and their reformers are all doing somersaults in their graves, because they have not remained on the rock, that is God's word. So we must be always. And it's not difficult. It's not difficult to be led astray. It's not difficult to, to kind of lose your moorings and forget. And that's why Jesus warns against it. The apostles warn against it. And here's a good example, you know, they'd seen all these things and somehow their message got lost along the way. So it's always about returning back to the gospel, returning back to the scriptures, returning back to the teaching of the prophets and the apostles so that we don't lose sight of it and get wrapped up in other traditions and other Perspectives that kind of become, begin to define us over against God's word.
1: But that's what the teachings of the church is. It's so, so important. I read not long ago that in, in the States, 25% of the evangelicals, uh, believe in the QAnon, uh, um, um, you know, co- conspiracy theories are completely uh, gone into it and, uh, uh, some church leaders, there have some, uh, uh some uh, pastors have left their church because they just said they can't do anything anymore here. But they, so they basically left their church rather than try, you know, well, I don't know what they could have done, but uh, there were a few examples of these pastors who had actually left their churches yeah. because of this. It's a, a big challenge, big uh, problem.
0: I was having a conversation with a, with a clergyman of a, of another denomination just the other day who's saying that he's, he's looking to move to another church because he's so tired of being in a church where there are about two people who actually want to hear the word of God and grow as Christians. attendance is good. It's just nobody wants to actually grow as Christian. Nobody wants to hear the word. They just want to turn up and he's, you know, he's getting exhausted. But yeah, there are, there are, I mean, you, you go to scandinavia you've got some of the largest church bodies in the world if you look at their membership lists measure them by church attendance they are minnows mm. and you know that's it's 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 always that so so we must always be on our guard you know we are not any more immune if if the first christians who were there on the day of pentecost could kind of lose sight of the gospel I think we are not, we are just as much in danger. And that's why it's so, so important that we continue to gather and to hear and to grow in the word. And this is why it's great to have, we need to have these Bible studies as well and constantly be refreshed in, in, in what the, what the scriptures actually say so that we don't, we don't kind of drift off, off, off center.
3: So one thing that really amazes me as well is like, I remember reading through the account of Athanasius one time. And, and, and the, the heretics that were against him, if, if you were to actually read some of their writings today and give it to many Christians, I don't think they'd even recognize that it wasn't Christian. Mm. It, the, the, I think it, the, the, the lack of understanding, the lack of, uh, sort of being knowing what what really is the word of god is is quite scary these days
0: i think and that's the thing with the, the most dangerous teachings aren't the ones where people come and say something completely horrendous
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know where somebody somebody sort of uh someone like Benny Hinn comes along and and says that you you know you can be uh you can be kind of divine yourself or you know some of this is really crazy okay people some people believe it but that's that's kind of obvious it's when you when you have that kind of small the, the little twist. You just say, yeah, you, you you got it almost right. I mean, just I, I once went to a theolo- theologi- uh, theological theological students kind of uh, fellowship where we had two turns presenting to one another on various topics. And there's um, uh, a young lady who's uh, who was um, uh, who whose turn it was to present, and she was presenting the doctrine of predestination. It was the most clever clever presentation i've ever heard by any any student at all because she presented the doctrine of predestination 99.5 percent correctly and then at the end said what said and then she basically finished and said why was this whole thing a bunch of heresy <laughs> did you spot the heresy and it was the 0.5 percent that rocked the whole thing upside down and it's those sort of little things it's it's, it's it's more or less there you know and it's that more or less bit that's where the, that's where the falsehood comes. That's where the, that's where doubt comes in. That's where the whole thing actually that the, you know, you, all you need to do is just put a crack in the foundations and everything else looks absolutely beautiful and, and the whole thing will come crumbling down eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember the, uh, in the book, Never Dream, you know, the, the statue
3: mm-hmm.
0: It's all very well until we get to the feet of clay. <laughs> and if you look at it, you know, you said, oh, is it always this 95% really solid? mm yeah good well thank you for thank you for your uh, those those comments and, and, and engagement um we will continue next time uh from uh uh verse twenty two and we'll finish the chapter and possibly move on to the next one as well uh but for now we will close with prayer heavenly father we thank you that you are faithful and that you have not taking away your holy spirit from your church but you continually uh provide the instruction of your holy word and that you have given us the grace to study your word together now we pray that you would constantly keep our eyes fixed on jesus that you would constantly correct us where we when we go astray keep us focused on the truth of your word and that and you would preserve your church throughout the world from false teachings that lead us way and astray Uh, from the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Bless us and all our loved ones and the church throughout the world. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.